Here is speaker presenter Lyle Southwell presenting the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in his live series called The Prophetic Code. You'll be amazed as he cracks the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in ways you have never heard before. We're going to begin by talking about secret societies. Always interesting to talk about things that are secret. Isn't that so? So that's one of the things we're going to start with. Let's bow our heads as we start with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much. That once again, we can gather together, we can study the prophecies of your word. We can, we can look at what the Bible says about our day. And as we look at this important subject of how the world will end, we pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you'll surround us. Whatever our background is, wherever we come from, regardless of, of our spirituality to this point, we pray that you'll surround us with your holy angels and draw us close to you. And so we pray for your blessing, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The subject of how will the world end is directly related to the subject of a number of very powerful secret societies that are in action in our world right now. You see, they have had a tremendous influence on this particular subject, particularly in their endeavour to cover over certain portions of this subject, and that's what we're going to look at this evening. So to do that, we're going to begin by going back through a little bit of history of the origin of the secret societies. In many ways, we can trace that history back to the Gnostics that came out of Egypt. So once again... As with so many of these subjects, we go back to Egypt. So many things that originated in Egypt explain what is happening in our world right now. The Gnostics came from Alexandria in Egypt. Alexandria, of course, was a Greek city. It was a mixture of the Egyptian mystery religions combined with Greek mythology and philosophy. And as these two formed, they, they came together in this new religion called Gnosticism about 200 years before Christ. And of course, the word Gnostic comes from the word Gnosis, which means knowledge. And it was basically, the idea was salvation through knowledge. One definition goes a little bit like this. They're a collective name for pantheistic, idealistic sects, which flourished from some time before the Christian era down to the 5th century, and which held matter to be a deterioration of spirit, the whole universe, a deprivation of the deity, and taught the ultimate end of all being to be the overcoming of the grossness of the matter and the return to the parent spirit. Did you get that? Okay, let me put it in really simple language for you all because it took me a little while to get my head around it too. The basic concept of Gnosticism was that there is a physical world and there is a spiritual world. The physical world is entirely and innately evil and the spiritual world is entirely and innately good. Therefore, anything spiritual is good and anything physical is evil. As humans, we have a body, so the body is innately evil. We have a spirit, so the spirit is innately good. This was the concept that they had. It was an esoteric religion. It was based around um, the concepts of dualism, the balance of the universe, um, good and evil, up and down, black and white, male and female, all of the other different concepts of balance. And when Christianity came along, it was largely embraced by Gnosticism. The interesting thing, when Gnosticism embraced Christianity, so to speak, it had a number of challenges. You see, in Christianity, you have Jesus, who is good. 
And so they got around that concept by saying, well, you know, um, Jesus, who was good, he didn't really have a physical body. When he walked, he didn't leave footprints. When he, you know, when he ate, he didn't really eat food, all of these kinds of concepts. And so they said that, uh, that, that he was uh, um, a spirit. And so, of course, the whole concept of Gnosticism was to get from the physical to the spiritual. Now, Gnosticism was largely rejected by Christianity because at its foundation, it was the exact opposite of Christianity. The foundational concept of Gnosticism was the opposite of the foundation of Christianity. You see, Gnosticism teaches that the solution to life, the solution to problems, the solution to peace, harmony, success, happiness, all of those kinds of concepts is found within yourself. That's where you go to find all the answers. Christianity, on the other hand, took the exact opposite of that. Christianity says, no, 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 no. The, the, the solution is not within yourself. You don't pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. The solution is found in dying to self and living for somebody else. His name is Jesus Christ. And so these were um, diametrically opposed for this reason. And so what happened was that there was a conflict between the two. Generally speaking, Gnosticism was rejected as a whole, but many of the concepts of Gnosticism were included into Christianity, and thus you had rise of the secret societies. Now, if we come down a thousand years, and we're going to skip down uh, fairly quickly through a fair bit of history. I've got a lot to cover in a short space of time. We come down, to, we begin with the Gnostics coming out of Egypt, um, come down to the time of the Crusades, and you had two Gnostic based secret societies that arose at this time, the Knights Hospitallers and the Knights Templars. Now, of course, the time of the Crusades, if we just put a date to that, there were eight Crusades between 1096 and 1270. The purpose of the Crusades was to take the Holy Land from Israel and establish it with Christianity. On the 15th of July, 1099, they eventually took the city of Jerusalem by storm and basically the entire inhabitants of the city, regardless of their age, regardless of their religion, regardless of their sex, were slaughtered at that particular time. And so for a time, Jerusalem did come to be held by the Crusaders. Not very long after this, in the year 1118, a man by the name of Hugh de Payne formed a military order of monks called the Poor Knights of the Temple of Solomon otherwise known as the Knights Templar. They were formed for the purpose of protecting pilgrims who were coming from the port city of Jaffa up to Jerusalem. The interesting thing about the Knights Templars was that in the first 12 years, they never went out on a single patrol. They spent that entire time busily digging underneath of the foundations of Solomon's Temple. Now, what they found or whether they found anything, we don't know. We've found uh, the tunnels that they dug. However, the story gets a little bit more interesting with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And with the Dead Sea Scrolls was a copper scroll called the Treasure Scroll. Now, this particular scroll gave the location of five different locations around Palestine where treasure was to be found. 
And so, of course, the archaeologists were keen to go to those locations and see what they could find, and typically they didn't find anything. But what they did find was that one of those locations was right here, where the Templars had been digging, and in two of the other oak locations, so three out of five, they found evidence of Templar excavations. And so they wondered whether the Templars did find something or not, or whether they had another copy of that same uh, document that was found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. However, here's what we do know. After 12 years, suddenly, overnight, so to speak, the Knights Templars became incredibly powerful and incredibly wealthy. They spread themselves across Europe. They became the first world bankers. They built great churches. They built great castles. They became an incredibly powerful order. Nobody knows the secret to what actually triggered that. There's a whole bunch of different theories. And that continued for some time until the year 1307. In the year 1307, the uh, Catholic Church at that time was um, facing a financial crisis. And so they looked around the world and they asked the question, well, where is there a ready supply of money? And of course, the Knights Templars, they were the world bankers at the time. And so they immediately came under the ban of the church. They were accused of heresy. They were accused of witchcraft. They were accused of a whole bunch of things that were probably, some of them were probably quite true. Many of them were burned at the stake. Um, And of course, this went out on Friday the 13th, 1307, which is the origin of Black Friday that we still know about today. And so that was the end of the Knights Templars, except for the fact that many of them fled to their sister organization, the Knights Hospitallers, and to the Freemasons. Now, Freemasons, we know that there is a direct connection between the Freemasons and the Knights Templars, and Rosalind Chapel is an excellent example of that. Within the carvings of this church, you see the connection between Freemasonry and the Knights Templars. However, the Freemasons themselves, their origin, there's no named founder. And so many people have wondered, well, where did the Freemasons originate from? And why is there so much of a crossover between the Templars and the Freemasons? Was it that the Templars hid amongst the Freemasons or was it that the Templars formed them as a place to hide? Nobody really knows. Of course, the Freemasons trace their heritage, um, their heritage a long way back, all the way back to the builders of the pyramids and Solomon's Temple and so forth, all the way back to ancient Egypt. Here's what we do know about the Freemasons. By 1127, stonemasons were using Egyptian and other esoteric symbols to identify their work. So that's very early on indeed. By 1646, there were non-operative and elite lodges in operation. Now, a non-operative is somebody who is not a stonemason, but is a Freemason. 1717, uh, modern Freemasonry was founded in England, and in 1733, it arrived in the United States. Of course, George Washington and many of the founding fathers of the United States were Freemasons, and today, um, half of the Freemasons of the world live in the United States. It's interesting, you go to Washington, D.C. I lived um, not far from here for several years, and if you look at a map of, of Washington, D.C., you can go home and, and hit Google Earth, and you can see all kinds of um, symbolism right here coming through from Masonic. And, you know, if you look at these top three here, you've got three large roundabouts there with six streets coming out of you know, six, 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 all kinds of stuff. But we don't have time to get into all of the detail. Let's go back to our chart. Okay, so from the Gnostics, we have the Knights Hospitalis, Knights Templars, coming down then into the Freemasons. Interesting, the Freemasons focused their effort 
on political control. Political control has been the area that Freemasonry has focused on. And so you've got situations like uh, in the United States, out of 44 presidents, only three of them, either directly themselves or through their vice president, haven't been linked with the Freemasons. Um, 26 are confirmed Masons. Most of the founders of the United States were. Um, and two-thirds of our prime ministers here in Australia have been uh, Freemasons. So you can see that, you know, that's obviously a long way out of line with the general population of the community, isn't it? And so we can see that they have somewhat of an agenda there. Well, the next organisation that we're going to move on and look at, the next society, is probably the most violent and powerful of them all. This one was formed by Ignatius Loyola in the year 1540. It was called the Society of Jesus or the Jesuits. And as with the Knights Templars, the Jesuit order is a military order with a general. Um, the Jesuit order very rapidly grew within a very short space of time. It had grown from the initial 10. Uh, in the first 100 years, there were over 15,000 um, Jesuits in the world, spanning the world. Now, the Jesuit order became so powerful and so violent that in the year 1773, it was banned by the Catholic Church. In fact, one historian described it like this, never before in the course of the world's history had such a society appeared. The old Roman Senate itself did not lay schemes for world domination with greater certainty of success. And so they were banned in 1773. Of course, they were restored in 1814 uh, by Pius VII. However, the disbanding of the Jesuit order gave rise to another secret society. And this brings us to an individual by the name of Adam Weishaupt who had both Masonic and Jesuit connections. He formed a society. By the way, the Freemasons, of course, you understand, have focused in the area of education. Adam Weishaupt brought the two organisations together. There is considerable analogy between the Masonic and Jesuit degrees. The Jesuits also tread down the shoe, bare the knee, because Ignatius Loyola thus presented himself at Rome and asked for confirmation of the order. Adam Weishaupt formed a society called the Illuminati. And a lot of you are asking me about the great seal of the Illuminati found on the American $1 bill last night. And here we find it right here with the 13 tiers of the pyramid going up and the eye within the triangle at the top. The Illuminati focused on financial control. So one focused on political control, another on education, and another on finances. Now, just to run through uh, very quickly, if we um, look at what we have here, we have a coming together of the secret societies and joining them up. I'll run through this very, very quickly because we don't have a lot of time. In 1773, the Jesuit order was dissolved by Clement the 14th. In 1776, the Illuminati was formed by Adam Weishaupt. In 83, Rothschild began Illuminati funding. In 1912, Rockefeller became a member and most people suspect and believe that his father was a member before he was. Hasn't been proven. 1913, Federal Reserve Act was passed, which was sponsored by Rothschild. 1917, the Bolsheviks were funded by Rothschild. In 1921, the Council on Foreign Relations was, found, was created by Rockefeller. In 1929, the stock market crash was orchestrated by Rockefeller and Rothschild. And, of course, 
1933, the United States went bankrupt. Control went to the world bankers. In 1939, both Hitler and Stalin were financed by Rothschild. If you finance both sides, you can't lose. In 1941, the United States ended the war. It was planned by Rothschild, Rockefeller, Schiff, etc., other Illuminati members. In 1945, the United Nations headquarters was created. It was built on land donated by Rockefeller. In 1973, the Trilateral Commission was created by Rockefeller. In 1988... George Bush was elected senior. We're going to talk about this in just a moment. A member of the Trilateral Commission, the Council on Foreign Relations, the CIA, and a Freemason. And then in 1990, both he and John Paul II formally announced the New World Order. Now, if we take a moment to consider our chart and we see the coming together of these different organisations that, uh, of course, the Illuminati is no longer known by by this name but by other uh, names that deal with finance... We need to go back and we need to look at another part of history. And that's a fascinating part of history to understand where these secret societies are today and how they actually affect us. At the end of the Second World War, there was an organisation that was quietly put together in Europe. It was founded by two men, Bill Donovan, a Knight's Hospitalia, and Alan Dulles, the father of the current Jesuit Cardinal Avery Dulles, it was put together by bringing together former German SS operatives that they had uh, captured and were now working in coalition with. It was called the OSS. Now, of course, it created a great scandal in the United States when they actually found out what was happening in Europe and that America was getting in bed with the SS. So in 1947, Harry Truman quietly renamed the OSS and called it, who knows, the CIA. Yeah, you didn't know it originated in religion, did you? You see, once you start to scratch the surface, religion is the driving force behind everything we see taking place in our world today. It is there everywhere. You just have to look at what's going on underneath the surface. And so we'll bring in the CIA over here. Now, this brings us to some more modern history because we have uh, the Bush dynasty coming along and this particular guy here announcing the beginning of... um, of the New World Order. Well, let's look at where their dynasty actually fits in. Um, if we go here and here and here, we find that George Bush Sr. is a member of the CIA, the Trilateral Commission, the Council on Foreign Relations, and a Freemason. But then in between the two Bushes, we had Bill Clinton. So where does Bill Clinton fit in? Well, this is where Bill Clinton fits in. Of course, Bill Clinton was educated at Georgetown Jesuit University and in a speech at that university, he spoke to his uh, mentor there who mentored him throughout his term in office and told his mentor that he had done everything that he had instructed him to do. And so we'll put Bill Clinton right there. And then we go to our current uh, president in the United States, Barack Obama. Let's have a look here for a minute. His vice president, Joe Biden, is former chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations. First Roman Catholic to be vice president. Biden holds a degree from Scranton Jesuit University. His son, Hunter, is a paid lobbyist for Scranton. His Chicago mentor mentor is a Jesuit priest. His chief speechwriter was Jesuit trained. His senior military and foreign policy advisor, Jesuit trained. His deputy communication director, Jesuit trained. And we could go on 
down through the list and so we will put him over here as well. I think the pattern that we see here very clearly is this. Wherever you look, it doesn't make any difference as to who you actually put in power. There are other powers at play. You see, they keep us all nice and happy and make us think like we're in control, but they make sure it doesn't matter who gets in, they are the ones who are actually in control of what's happening in our world today, and it is all being driven by religion. So you ask the question, how does that actually affect tonight's subject? How will the world end? I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, and while we're turning there, there's a number of things that we need to understand. And that is that centuries ago, the plans for the domination of our world were set in place. But millennia ago, it was prophesied in this book right here. And so very simply, you had great men of history who studied the prophecies of the Bible And as a result of studying the prophecies of the Bible, they were able to outline very clearly and expose what the plans were for the end of our world, the plans for globalism that were to take place. And so great men like um, Sir Isaac Newton, for instance, wrote about it. He has a book, Thoughts on Daniel and the Apocalypse, where he goes, he shows out who all the main players are, how they fit in, so forth and so on. And so... Those who were trying to bring about globalization on our planet had a major problem on their hand because they were totally exposed by this book. So they had to create a scheme to cover it over. And this, I believe, is probably the greatest and most effective operation ever carried out by a secret society headed up by the Jesuits, and that is to cover over the prophecies contained in this book right here. Tonight I'm going to begin to show you some of the ways that they actually managed to accomplish that because it has a direct bearing. In fact, it has so direct a bearing on tonight's subject, it was specifically prophesied by Jesus Christ. Let me show it to you right here, Matthew 24. Matthew 24, we begin in verse 4. Jesus answered and said unto them, Watch out that no one deceives you. We read this last night, didn't we? Then he goes on again in verse 5, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall what? Do what? Deceive many. Then you go down to verse 11, and he says, And many false prophets shall arise and do what? What are they going to do? Deceive many. Then you go down to verse 24, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very righteous. Now that's a serious warning, wouldn't you say? That should put every single one of us on our guard, wouldn't you think? So if Jesus four times warns against deception, how are we going to avoid deception? Let me share with you, it is real simple. You need to follow what this book says right here. The moment that you catch yourself following a church or a preacher or somebody else, you are setting yourself up for failure. You need to go home every night and check out what I say by the Bible. I wouldn't let anybody talk to me the way I'm talking to you. 
without reading my Bible and finding out whether it's true or not. So that's my challenge for you all here this evening. So Jesus says, take heed that, watch out that no one deceives you. Then we go down to the next verse. That was in verse 24. What is this deception going to be in relationship to? In other words, four times, watch out that no one deceives you. But what are we going to be deceived in relation to? Notice what Jesus says, verse 25. Behold, I have told you before, wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. Once you notice what the warning is about, the warning is not about when Jesus is coming back. The warning is all about how Jesus is coming back. It's all about the way that that will take place. You know, I had somebody, I was studying the Bible with a young lady one time, and we were about to start this subject, and she got all excited, and she said, you know, I found out something last week with some friends of mine that I was studying with, that Jesus came back already. I'm like, really? Yes, she said, he came back in 1914. And I said, oh, that's so interesting. I said, um... I haven't seen him anywhere. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. It was a secret coming. And I said, well, actually, it's interesting you should say that. I don't actually believe it. Do you know why? Because my Bible says that if somebody comes to me and says that Jesus is coming back secretly, believe it not. You can't make it much plainer than that, can you? Okay, so there's all this deception that is going to be around in relationship to how Jesus is coming back, we need to ask ourselves the question, how is Jesus coming back? Let's do a Bible study. Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 1. You see, if you know what the Bible says, you know what the truth is. If you know what the truth is, you won't be deceived. Acts chapter 1, and let's start in verse 9. The Bible says, and when he had spoken these things, while they beheld... He was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white clothing, which said, You men of Galilee, why stand you gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. So here's the very first point that we need to look at in relationship to the return of Christ. The Bible says this same Jesus, the same one that went up into heaven, is the same one that's coming back down. Now, when Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives, Jesus literally, physically ascended up into heaven. Which means if he's coming back the same way, he is literally, physically going to descend back down onto this earth. Isn't that so? But that's not all. The Bible says more. In relationship to the return of Christ, I want you to notice the language that is used in these three verses. What's this? We have the words beheld, sight, looked, behold, gazing, seen. What kind of language is that? Have you all gone to sleep? Okay. It's all visual language, isn't it? You're not allowed to go to sleep yet. We're coming to the best part, right? Okay, so this is all visual language, isn't it? Okay? So that gives us a clue in relationship to the return of Christ. Let's now go to Matthew 24 again. In fact, hold your finger there or put your bookmark there. Uh, Matthew 24, we're going to spend a bit of time in it. And let's see how the Bible describes this event. 
Matthew chapter 24. Let's start in verse 30. The Bible says, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. I do not understand. I guess I do, but I can't understand anybody mourning to see Jesus come back. Can you? But so many people will. The Bible says all of the tribes will see him come back and that they will mourn. Verse 31, He shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, They shall gather together his elect, that's the righteous, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. The Bible says that all of the tribes will see him come back. The angels will go out and will gather together the righteous. It will take place with the great sound of a trumpet. Okay. They gather the righteous together in the air. Now, while we're we're looking at this concept here, hold your finger there, go to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, let me show you what it says over here. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. Revelation 1 and verse 7, the Bible says, Behold, he comes with clouds, and how many people are going to see him come back? Every eye will see him. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Now, I don't know how that works. How does everybody see Jesus at the same time? I don't know, but it works because the Bible says that every eye will see Jesus come back. Okay, let's, 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 let's look at that then again over in Matthew 24, shall we? I want to show you something else over here because this is just amazing. Matthew 24. In fact, go to 25. 25, verse 31, where it says, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and... How many of the angels are coming with him? All the angels. Think about that for a moment. How many angels are there? We don't know, but we know that at the very least, there are a few hundred million. And the Bible says that all of them will be in one place at one time. Now that will be an event that you will not be able to miss, will it? Imagine that. I am looking forward to that day. Every single angel that God has ever created here at this earth. No wonder Jesus says in chapter 24 and verse 27, for as the lightning comes out of the east and shines even unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Did anybody see the lightning the other night? I saw a bit of lightning the other night. Have you ever seen a lightning bolt? I never have. That stretches from horizon to horizon. A blind person would be able to see that. You can see lightning with your eyes closed, can't you? That's what the Bible describes the return of Jesus as being like. Go over to, uh, let's go to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and we'll start in verse 16. I want you to notice where the Bible parallels the same concept right here. And we'll simply make a list as we work our way through the verse. The Bible says in verse 4, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. We just read about that in Matthew 24, didn't we? Then it says, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Let's make a list. How is Jesus coming back? The Bible says he's coming back with the great sound of a trumpet. The Bible says he's coming back with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and that the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Okay, then we continue on. Let's go over to Psalms 50 now. And in Psalms 50, I want you to notice something that the Bible says that God will not do when he comes back. What is it that God will not do when he returns? Psalms chapter 50. Psalms chapter 50. And we'll read verse 3 where it says this, Our God shall come and shall not do what? He's not going to be silent. When Jesus comes back, he won't be silent. And that's good news. In fact, when you read this passage here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he comes back with the great sound of a trumpet, the voice of the archangel and the shout of God. You could describe that as being the noisiest verse in the entire Bible. Such an incredible promise. And Jesus says, the Bible says, comfort one another with these words, with this promise right here. And what a promise and what a comfort those words are. Okay, so when we put all of this together, Jesus is coming back. How will Jesus return? His return will be literal, the Bible says. It will be visible, it will be audible, and it will be with power and great glory. Now, at this particular time, I often have people who ask me the question, and they say, well, um, what about the secret rapture? Now, some of you have probably heard of it, some of you had not What about the secret rapture? And that's a really good question because I've done a fair bit of research into this. In fact, I've searched into it about as thoroughly as I can. And this is what I've never been able to find in the Bible. I've never been able to find in the Bible anywhere where the Bible describes the return of Jesus as being invisible or silent. Now, the secret rapture, for those of you who might not be familiar with this, is a concept that, that, um, that says that the return of Jesus will be secret and silent and in two stages, etc. So there's a number of... Um, I, I want to challenge you all this evening. It's always good to be challenged, right? That's what it's all about. Let's, 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 let's challenge ourselves to go and study. Some people ask me the question. They say, well, you know, Matthew 24, there's a passage there that says, um, you know, two, two, will be, uh, two will be in the field, one is taken, the other left. Let's go there, shall we? Matthew 24. Because I've asked people at different times, it's okay, the secret rapture, show me some verses on this. And so people often bring me to this passage where it says in Matthew 24 and verse 40, Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. Is there anywhere in that passage where it says that the return of Christ will be silent? No? Is there anywhere in that passage where it says that the return of Christ will be invisible? No. It simply says that there'll be two people standing side by side. One is saved and the other is lost, right? Yeah, in fact, the disciples actually asked Jesus, uh, if you go over to Luke chapter 17, they asked him, those that are lost, or those that are left, what happens to them? Luke 17 Verse 35, two women shall be grinding together. One shall be taken, the other left. Two men shall be in the field. One shall be taken, the other left. And they answered, that's the disciples, answered and said unto him, where, Lord? In other words, where are they going to be left? And he said unto them, wherever the body is, there will the eagles be gathered together. In what condition did Jesus describe those that are left on this earth? Yeah, that's pretty plain, isn't it? So then the other question, if we go back to Matthew 24, I did tell you to put your bookmark there, didn't I? 
is verse 43. And in verse 43, the Bible says, but know this, that if the good man of the house, Jesus is speaking, if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have allowed his house to be broken up. And I've had people come to me and say, there you go. The Bible describes the return of Jesus as being like a thief. Now, all thieves sneak in really quietly, steal something and then sneak out again. Isn't that so? Anyone ever heard of a ram raid? It's not exactly sneaky, is it? Let me share with you something that all thieves do have in common. Now, some, some are sneaky and others are not. However, this is what thieves all have in common. They don't get on the phone and ring you up and say, I'm coming over to rob your house tomorrow night, do they? No. They all endeavour to come unexpectedly. So we have to ask ourselves the question, at this particular point, is Jesus saying that he is coming silently and invisibly or is he saying that he's coming unexpectedly? Well, the answer to that question is found in the context. Let's read the context. Let's put it on the screen. Okay. Verse 36, but of that day and hour knows no man. Is that secret, silent, or unexpected? unexpected? Okay, good, that's unexpected. What about this one? Likening it to the flood, they knew not until the flood came. What's that one? Unexpected, unexpected. good. And then verse 42, watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord does come. Unexpected, good. Therefore be you also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. And what's that one? Unexpected, unexpected. good. Uh, let's go to verse 50. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looks not for him, and now that he is not aware of. What's that one? What's therefore? For you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man comes. How much more context do you need than six verses giving you context, defining for you exactly what the Bible says when it says that what it, what it means when it says that Jesus is coming back unexpectedly. In fact, let me show you another verse. Second Peter, chapter three. And verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. I want you all to turn to this one. I want you to see it. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, the Bible says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. In the which. In other words, Jesus is here describing. What will take place in the day that he comes as a thief in the night? In the which, what's going to happen? The heavens shall pass away with a great noise. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now, let me, let me point out the really obvious. If, if, if Jesus returns and the atmosphere vanishes, and the surface of our earth turns to molten lava, and you miss that? You miss something pretty big. In fact, I would like to meet anybody who could survive that event. That's why Jesus says those that are left on this earth are left dead. Nobody can survive the event that is described right here. The Bible says when Jesus comes back as a thief, this is what will take place. So here's, a, uh, here's, a, uh, here's, here's what we have. Let's, let's, let's line it up. The return of Jesus is going to be unexpected. It's going to be like a thief and it's going to come with 
sudden distraction. Here's a few missing verses for you. A couple of verses that are not in the Bible anywhere. They do not exist. That the return of Christ will be in two stages. Not there. That the return of Christ will be invisible. Not there. You won't find that one. The return of Christ will be silent. It's not there. The return of Christ will be secret. Doesn't exist. The return of Christ will be survivable on earth. Doesn't exist. So then you ask the next question. Okay, it's not such a big deal here in Australia, but in the United States, the vast majority of the population actually believes this. The vast majority of the population. And so you have to then ask yourself the question, what's the origin? Where did it come from? How did that actually happen? Let me give you a little bit of history. I'll run through it real quick. If we go back to the year 1592, we have a Jesuit priest by the name of Francisco Ribera who was commissioned specifically by his order to produce a document that would reinterpret all of Bible prophecy so that their aims could be put into place without the world knowing what was going on. It was further refined by Robert Bellarmine, an Englishman in 1620. Emmanuel Lukunza came along in 1816 and he added in the two-stage second coming concept. And then we come down to John Darby in 1830, Edward Irving, 1833, and Margaret MacDonald at the same time. And it's interesting because when you come down to these three individuals here, they are not a part of the Jesuit order. In fact, they're from the other side of the fence. They're Protestant. However, what they did was they dusted off the theories of Ribera and Bellamine, added in Lacunza's bit, and brought it across as a new teaching into Protestantism because up until this point, nobody had given it any serious consideration whatsoever at all. Now, even still, up until this point, the secret rapture didn't exist until Margaret MacDonald. Margaret MacDonald was an interesting lady. She dabbled in spiritualism. She was a, a, a part-time spirit, spiritualist medium slash Christian. So she would worship at church, but she would also communicate with the spirits. And one night she had a dream. She had a vision. In that vision, she saw the second coming of Jesus being um, in two stages and the first stage being secret and silent. And that's the origin of the majority, of the teaching that the majority of people in the United States believe today. And that's why you won't find it in the Bible. It did not originate in the Bible, and so you can't find it there. It originated with a vision by a lady by the name of Margaret MacDonald. Of course, then you had Cyrus Schofield in 1890 who put out a study Bible. He wrote this into the notes of the study Bible. He was converted by John Darby, and he spread it throughout the United States and today it controls United States policy um, in many areas of government. Now, one of the interesting things is if you study into symbolism, and I like to study into symbolism, symbols tell an interesting story. Let me show you an interesting symbol because there's another name that we need to add to this list, a more recent one. Here's a Masonic symbol. It's a symbol of the union of church and state. Never a good thing. Jesus spoke very specifically against that. This is now the York Rite jewelry you may see is the Templar symbol, a Latin cross within a crown. The arms of the cross is the motto um, in this sign, conquer. Now, in the 1990s and up until the mid-2000s, there was a series of books put out that sold more than 66 million copies 
It's called the Left Behind series. It's all about the secret rapture. And it was written by a fellow by the name of Tim LaHaye. Anybody see what's going on here? Now, those books actually control American foreign policy today. Did you know that? Because when you have something that the majority of the population believes in, you're not going to be elected if you don't back it up in your policy. You see, what we have is religion is driving politics in our world today. And the teaching of the second coming of Jesus, the greatest, one of the greatest subjects in the whole of the Bible, has been covered over by secret societies who are endeavouring to control our world. But there's one more thing I want to finish with before we finish off. And that is the question. I want to put this issue aside for a moment and I want to focus on the good news and ask the question, why is it that Jesus is coming back? And to answer this question, I want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to share with you one of my favourite passages in the whole Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You know, somebody asked a question the other night, and, and, and I don't remember exactly how, but it, went, but it was something like this. Why don't we hear more about prophecy in our churches? Why don't we hear more about sermons on, on the second coming of Jesus as mentioned more than twice as many times in the New Testament as the subject of grace? And grace is the only way that anybody can ever be saved. Why aren't we hearing about it all the time? Why isn't it you know, being something that we're focusing on? Now, I don't know the answer to that question, but let me share with you a story very quickly from when I was um, a young person, a kid. When I grew up, in, we lived in Tasmania. It's the promised land, by the way. And our house was long. We're on the side of a hill and we had this long house. The hallway went all the way along the back. The rooms were all the way along the front because they caught lots of sunshine. A very valuable thing in Tasmania. And so down one end of the house was the kitchen dining room. The other end of the house was the master bedroom. And my mum was down in the kitchen one day baking a cake. She baked this cake, pulled it out of the oven, and I'm a kid and I'm smelling it. I was like, oh, wow. you know. And it's sitting there and it's cooling. Rank. She put it on one of these like silver square pieces of wood. I know nothing about cooking. And then she started to, to spread icing on it. And it was that kind of icing, you know, you spread it on with a, with a big thick knife. And she's spreading this icing on, spreading it all around. And it's sitting on the cake and it's sort of, it would, it drooling down the side and making little puddles around the bottom. And I'm just standing there watching this whole process. And I think my mum knew me rather well. And she says, Lyle, don't touch the cake. Well, the time came when the cake was placed in the fridge. And I waited until my mother was at the other end of the house. And I opened the fridge and I got my finger into the icing and it was right here. I suddenly had this sixth sense and I'm going, oh no, I can feel somebody looking at me. And I've looked around and my mum is standing right there in the door I've got to tell you that at that particular point, I wished that my mum was on the other side of the planet or the other side of the universe because I knew what was coming my way and it wasn't going to be a whole lot of fun. You know, sometimes one of the reasons why I believe that we don't hear so much about the second coming of Jesus when this is such good news is because, particularly here in Australia, 
we have our fingers so much in the icing of this world that we wish that Jesus was a million miles away. But let me tell you, friends, let me describe, let me read to you what it says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about the return of Jesus. It tells us exactly why Jesus is coming back. In verse 51, it says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day, aren't you? In fact, I have a long list of things that I'm looking forward to being changed about me, aren't you? Yeah? I'll tell you what else I'm looking forward to. The Bible says that the dead shall be raised incorruptible. My mother passed away when I was young. And I'm looking forward to seeing her again because I have that promise right here. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. And when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, this mortal shall have put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Jesus is coming back, friends. He's coming back to reward those who have been faithful to him. He's coming back for you and I and he wants every single one of us there and waiting and ready for him on that day. And I want to be there. I want to be ready. I want to be waiting for Jesus to come back. When I see him in the clouds of heaven, I want to say, yes, this is my best friend right here. Don't you want to have that same experience? Do you want to have that experience? I know that I do, friends. Praise God. Let's bow our heads as we close with prayer. Father in heaven, We thank you so much for the promise of your return. We have found that it's something that will happen soon. We have found that it is something that will happen with power and great glory, that this will be the most amazing, the most magnificent event in the history of the universe. Father, we look forward to that day with every part of our being. Be with us now. Prepare us for that great day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. been listening to an M24 media production of The Prophetic Code by speaker-presenter Lyle Southwell. For more information, visit knowthecode.global or call 3ABN Australia Radio on 02-4973-3456.
Jamie George played The Lord Bless and Keep You, followed by Marsha Williams singing Lamb of God. <laughs> 